I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 7 today, very much so laying a foundation for the theme of the book. As we might expect uh, Paul to do, he is introducing this epistle by laying a foundation for the things that are on his heart and on his mind that compelled him to write it to Timothy in the first place. We uh, preached our book sermon last week, setting uh, the stage, the broader picture of what uh, the uh, epistle of Paul to Timothy is about. And we had mentioned particularly that the theme of the book is and will be sound doctrine. And we'll see that quite clearly as we walk through the first seven verses. <clears throat> Excuse me. Today, we're going to dig right into the heart of Paul's desire for Timothy and into the heart of Paul's concerns for the people at Ephesus. Remember that uh, as, as we walk through the book sermon, we'll see it today, that Paul uh, has left Timothy in Ephesus and has moved on. And it's really that church there that we would imagine would be on Paul's mind, particularly as he wrote this epistle. We're also going to dig into right into the heart of a tremendous problem in not just the church of that day, it was really a threat in that day, perhaps a, a problem uh, not too long after Paul wrote this, uh, and a problem for the modern church today. Many of you have perhaps heard me say this on any number of occasions, but the last couple of decades have been very unique as it relates to history uh, for ministers of the word and for churches. Now, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, and, and, and indeed, uh, that is true. I, I do struggle to find a, a, a direct comparison to what we have seen in history and culture as it relates to the last 20 years of of history. For the majority of history since the church began, the minister of the Word of God was the direct and often nearly exclusive source of biblical teaching to any given locality. If people wanted to hear about the Bible, they would seek to the minister in their hometown and they would learn it from him. They would have a traveling evangelist that would come from time to time, perhaps a, a larger evangelist that would, would, would be in a big city and they might travel to hear him speak at any given time, but the majority of the ministry was uh, relegated to local ministers. Naturally, this has both positives and it has negatives, right? The negatives are somewhat obvious to anyone who has attempted to find a church and has been out of luck or has attempted to submit themselves to a local church where the minister is not a very good teacher or not a very good counselor or not a very good pastor or whatever it might be. To some degree, uh, they wither on the vine. Uh, they receive very little, perhaps, good teaching or true teaching. Or maybe their minister, as I said, was a poor counselor or a poor shepherd. They, they don't understand or not able to help them with their cares or with their concerns, with their trials or with the sorrows of life. And, and for most in history, there was a bit of a luck of the draw as to whether or not their locality had a minister who would help them grow in their faith or, or leave them, as it were, to wither a little bit on the vine of the minister's apathy or incompetence. Certainly, however, there have been any number of approved ministers throughout history who have served faithfully in their towns and in their cities and in their localities of God's choosing. They've taught their people well. They've led them into truth. They've guided and comforted them in the difficult hours of their lives. Regardless of the type of minister, however, those ministers had a real advantage in their day, which ministers of this day mostly lack, at least in the Western world, and that is that measure of exclusivity. 
Whether or not the people in any generation had a good or bad minister, it was the minister they had. They didn't have radio and television and the internet. They couldn't just go and listen to anybody and everybody that they chose to at any given time. And again, there's detriments to that when you have a minister that uh, is, is perhaps not as skillful in the word or, or simply the, the opportunity to learn from some of the best uh, and most affirmed ministers in the world, even from years gone by, as we now have recordings of the last hundred years plus sometimes of ministers and can learn from their teaching and from their examples. But there's also a detriment to this. The detriment is that for any number of generations, the false church was able to stifle sound doctrine because they could completely control the narrative, right? Whether or not uh, there was a minister of truth, the false church could control the narrative. The positive, however, is that it meant that if a minister is in a town and he is what the people hear, he's who the people hear and he's who the people trust, that if a false teacher would come into that town, the minister could protect his people from that false teacher, from those false doctrines. There was a time when a pastor knew what his people were learning and had the ability to control that inflow of information. As long as the pastor was approved by God, this would be very beneficial because then the people would be protected from false doctrine. These scenarios, however, are becoming more and more rare in the church today, at least in the Western world. Today, any guy in his mom's basement with a camera and the internet can effectively formulate a following. He can have, in some ways, a very similar voice to anyone else. because of the democratization of information, particularly through the internet. And again, there's a real value in this, in that news that previously would get stopped at a gatekeeper is now free to be heard and to be understood. Narratives change. People understand what's actually going on. Where there is a stifling of sound doctrine, sound, sound doctrine or, or a lack of sound doctrine, sound doctrine can still get to you. But you perhaps see the negative as well. That whereas before, a guy preaching false doctrine would be in his town and would be spouting his false doctrine to a town and by and large, there would be an inability for him to get that message beyond his own little sphere. Now a man with a false message can get that message out very, very easily. And if he's got good production quality... And if he um, has the ability to communicate well, he probably will gain a following. And this makes Paul's warning to Timothy right at the outset of the epistle of 1 Timothy all the more important today. That God's people need to be careful about what we are listening to, who we are listening to. What's being said? We need to cultivate a love and an appreciation for sound doctrine, for truth, and the methods by which truth can be discerned. Don't just appreciate that there is truth, but appreciate how it is we come to discerning truth from error. 
There's a lot of error out there. And not all of it is coming from theological liberalism. There's a great deal of error among theological conservatism as well. A great deal of ignorance, a great deal of conspiratorial thinking. Things which men who have studied the Bible hear and would be tempted to just ignore with a chuckle and say, wow, that's really crazy. But I can't just roll my eyes, chuckle, and say, wow, that's really crazy anymore. Because when I roll my eyes, chuckle, and say, wow, that's really crazy, there's people that come up to me and say, hey, pastor, guess what I heard? This is really interesting, isn't it? And I say, "Uh uh-oh, it's not crazy to everybody. Those things which men who have studied the Bible would be tempted to ignore cannot be ignored any longer. These people with these theories and these thoughts and these ideas have an equal voice in society. And they use that voice very effectively. Men who are clearly disapproved for ministry have sizable ministries. They don't have anyone in a congregation, but they have several hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube. And they may reach more people in a given week than I will reach in my lifetime. And all of this means that 1 Timothy and his teachings are very relevant for today. This morning we'll begin to lay the foundation for sound doctrine of the church, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Timothy. And the Bible says this in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Paul begins his common introduction to his epistles, stating his name and his authority. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostles were a group of men that, that um, were found early uh, in the early church, who God had chosen and commissioned to be his direct representatives of the teachings of Jesus Christ to the local church. They were given the authority to be a reflection, to be, a, to be the word of Christ. Uh, after Christ had died on the cross, he'd risen again, he'd ascended into heaven. The apostles were left as those who were the voice of Christ to the early church. And the scriptures indicate to us several things about the apostles. First, we know from the scriptures that they were foundational to the church, not structural to the church. And what I mean by this is that the Bible indicates that they were in existence in that first generation of the church, but that their ministries were not intended to carry on into every generation of the church. They were foundational, not structural. Much to the rather, God chose the apostles to function until such a time that the New Testament scriptures were penned in full, at which point the ministry of the apostles was no longer necessary because we had the finished word of God penned and written for us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, verses 19 to 22, in fact, we read this. <clears throat> Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So Paul tells us here that the church is the habitation of God, that the church is the building of God, that God inhabits His people, His church, not the, not the building we're in, but us as the building upon which, uh, within, which Christ, within which God ab- abides, and that that building is built upon a foundation, The foundation of the church, which is fitly framed into a building wherein God has chosen to work in this world, is the apostles and the prophets. 
And the, and the cornerstone of that building is Jesus Christ. So the foundation of the church is the Word of God. The apostles and the prophets were those that God had commissioned to pen the Word of God. All of that which the apostles and the prophets said is gauged by Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God made flesh. God chose to speak to his people directly through these apostles and through these prophets. He would instruct the prophet. He would instruct the apostle. The prophet or the apostle would then instruct God's people. And all of it naturally is 100% in line with the person, the work, and the character of Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of the building. He is the one that everything else is gauged by. You're a false prophet if you say something that is not according to the Word of God, right? If you say something that is not in line with the character of God. Well, Jesus Christ is God manifest. So Jesus Christ is that standard bearer, the standard by which all truth is judged. Then Ephesians 2 says the church is built on top of that structure. The apostles and prophets are not a part of that structure. They are the foundation, and then the church is built upon it. The scriptures reveal to us only 14 apostles by name. There were the original 11, minus Judas, who was the son of perdition. Then we had uh, Judas's replacement, as was chosen by lots, known as Matthias. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. And then both Paul and Barnabas are called apostles in Acts chapter 14, verse 14. And so we see Paul, Barnabas, Matthias, and the other 11. These 14 are the only ones we know of as far as the apostles were concerned. But what we don't see is any next generation apostles. We don't see any record of Paul or Peter or any of the apostles appointing apostles in some sort of apostolic succession. We don't see any apostolic succession in the Word of God. We don't see any precedent to assume that the apostolic ministry continued beyond the time that the Word of God was penned and completed. Nor is there really any precedent for a reason for the apostles once the Word of God was completed. Quite the contrary, the Bible gives us evidence to support the opposite conclusion. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the book of Hebrews begins this way, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So there was a time for the prophets, and that is done. So you have prophet so-and-so today, probably not prophet so-and-so. All right? And then we have Jesus Christ, who God has chosen in these last days to speak unto us through and naturally we see from the word of God that the apostles were appointed to be those who spoke for Christ. And so Christ spoke, taught his church through the apostles. And now we have the completed scriptures. In Jude, verse 3, there's only one chapter in Jude. In Jude, verse 3, Jude describes the, the, the faith this way. He calls it the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And that word once there literally meaning once for all delivered unto the saints. That the word of God was given. It was given once. It was given once for all. And it is ours now. We have it. And it, it is sufficient for all things as pertains to life and godliness. Thus, the apostles and the prophets represented in the word of God as it has aligned with Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, is the foundation for the church, upon which the church is built. 
and becomes our final authority for faith and practice. And that's where we get that idea, that the Bible is our final authority for faith and for practice. This is essential to understand as we step into 1 Timothy, because as Paul calls Timothy to contend for sound doctrine, we must understand that this sound doctrine is rooted in the Word of God, not in the ideas of men. Sound doctrine is not that which I decide, which Paul decided was sound doctrine, which Timothy decided is sound doctrine. It's not that the minister gets into his church and he says, well, now I'm going to run through a list and decide what is and is not sound doctrine for my church. It is that we identify sound doctrine. It is that we see what the Word of God says, what Jesus Christ said, this is sound doctrine, and we say that is ours. This is now the canon, the ruler, the standard by which we live our lives. And this will become clear as we continue in our text. So Paul establishes his authority, which naturally Timothy already knew. And this is what's interesting. He, he, when he says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now Timothy has traveled with Paul for some time by this point. Timothy knows full well who Paul is, right? Timothy does not need to be told that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior. And this is what begins to lend us to the understanding that this is not just a personal letter that Paul only intended to go to Timothy. It seems, even from the outset, that Paul understood and consented to the idea that this letter written to Timothy would be distributed and read by churches, and in fact, most likely, he very much wanted it to be so. How do we know that? Well, because he's introducing his authority here. He's establishing why it is that, that what he writes matters. He wouldn't need to do that if it was just a Dear Timothy letter. Right? So he's establishing his authority. It is a letter to Timothy. Most certainly it is. It, it, it gets personal, which, which it does. But even in the introduction, it becomes apparent that Paul knew that this letter would be distributed, would be read to the churches, and that Paul needed to establish who it is and why he had the authority to write these things. He says he's an apostle by the commandment of God. That word commandment speaks to an authoritative decree here, that God, by his own authority, decreed that Paul should be an apostle. This was God's authority that went with these apostles. It was validated divine authority. We read of this in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. God is speaking to Ananias after Paul had been converted. His name was Saul at the time on the road to Damascus. And we read this in verses 15 and 16. The Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he, that would be Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. As with Jeremiah so many years earlier, who had been chosen by God as a prophet to those who would go into captivity in Israel, and Isaiah, who had been chosen by God as a prophet and commissioned to go into the nation of Israel, we find that God had chosen Paul for the specific purpose of bearing Christ's name, and specifically to the Gentiles, as Paul himself will affirm, along with kings in the nation of Israel. We find that he was chosen by God to suffer many things for Christ's sake. And so to this end, Paul has established authority. He is an apostle. And we would generally believe with all of the apostles chosen directly by the authoritative command of God and our Savior Jesus Christ to this office. And do take note of how Paul describes God here. He doesn't say God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He says God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ. 
God the Savior of us and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is calling Jesus Christ here God, Lord, and Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is God. This will become more and more apparent when we get to 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, right? God was manifest in the flesh. Don't let anyone tell you, well, Jesus isn't God. Paul said, Timothy, uh, Paul said to Timothy, Jesus is God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God is manifest in the flesh. The commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Savior. Christ is our Savior. And finally, which is our hope. That word hope in our King James Bibles, as we mentioned this morning in our Sunday school hour, does not mean what hope has come to mean, right? Today, hope is considered a fearful longing for something that we wonder if it may or may not happen. It, it, it speaks of something that is uncertain. It speaks for something that we want, but we may not get, that we want, but we're not sure if it will happen. That's not the biblical definition of hope. In the Bible, hope means an earnest and joyful expectation. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good means full and complete confidence that we will have something, that something will happen. He is our hope. Christ is our hope. He is our confidence. Our hope in every conceivable way. And again, what does this mean? This means that it isn't man that we look to. It's not a system that we look to. A system is not our hope. A theology is not our hope. A theory is not a hope. An ideology is not our hope. A dogma is not our hope. A creed is not our hope. Our hope is in Christ and in His Word. He is our hope. That is our hope. And if that remains our hope, where we will rest is in sound doctrine. As long as Christ remains the standard bearer. Verse 2. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. The letter is written to Timothy. We talked about him last week, where he came from, where they found him, why he was with Paul, all of those things. But notice here Paul describes him as my own son in the faith. We spoke briefly last week about what this might mean. We theorized that it likely meant that Paul had been the one who had led Timothy to the Lord. Timothy comes into the scene, as we saw last week in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas arrived in the area of Lystra for the second time, in their second journey. Timothy was already a believer when Paul had gotten there, so then if he had been led to the Lord by Paul, it would have been in the first, the first time that Paul and Barnabas were at Lystra. By that second time, Timothy already had a reputation of being a young man of spiritual distinction. So we don't have the point of Timothy's salvation. We don't know if that is true. But it does seem, from the way Paul describes it, quite possible that Paul had been the one to lead Timothy to the Lord. It is also possible that, Timothy, or that Paul was simply speaking of the degree to which his bond with Timothy had been grown. That his love and his care for Timothy here was great. Not perhaps that he led him to the Lord, but only that as he and Timothy had traveled together and they had spoken together, there was a bond that had formed between them as a, 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 a disciple and a master or a father and a son. That's possible as well. 
Now, as is common in the letters, Paul wishes upon the reader grace and peace. You'll find in almost every one of the letters that Paul writes this concept of grace and peace. But notice there's something added here. Grace, mercy, and peace. What is interesting about this is that it is only in those three pastoral epistles that we talked about. First and Second Timothy and Titus. Those are the only three epistles where Paul adds mercy. In all of the other epistles, as he writes to the churches, he says, grace and peace. When he writes to these individual ministers, Timothy and Titus, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Perhaps Paul is highlighting a particular need for mercy among God's ministers, as they would be called, perhaps in a heightened way, to suffer for Christ's sake, as they, of course, are also under a significantly higher accountability, uh, needing perhaps a little more of God's mercy as they are those who are called to lead the people of God. Verse 3, Paul continues, he says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So Paul speaks of Timothy being in Ephesus. Possibly Paul and Timothy were there together and Paul moved on and left Timothy. Or possibly he just charged Timothy to go to Ephesus uh, and then he went his own way uh, before they'd gotten to Ephesus. Either way, however, uh, Paul felt compelled to, to go to Macedonia and to leave Timothy in Ephesus. Now Ephesus was in Asia Minor. Uh, and there, it would be on the western coast of what is now Turkey. Macedonia was not a city. Macedonia was a region. It was the region uh, of, of the north part there of what we would call Greece. Particularly within that upper region, there were several cities that Paul had been to on his first uh, time around. Ne or I guess it would be the second journey. Neapolis, Philippi, Apollonia, Amphipolis... Thessalonica and Berea were those, those uh, cities within Macedonia that he visited previously. He felt compelled to go back there and he left Timothy, sent Timothy to Ephesus or left him there. And he left him behind for a particular purpose, that he might charge some, that Timothy might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That word there, it's only one word in the Greek, teach no other doctrine, is made up of two Greek words, hetero, meaning different, and uh, didaskaleo, which means to teach. So to teach differently is literally the idea there. It's used only in 1 Timothy. And if you want to get more of an idea uh, of the theme of Paul and, and, and speaking of sound doctrine, it bookends the book. In chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 6, verse 3, we find this word, teach no other doctrine. It kind of bookends this, this epistle. Other than that, we don't find the word again in the New Testament. This thus becomes foundational, as we would see it, as we would understand it, to the theme of the book. And Paul is going to tell Timothy what this other doctrine is that they should avoid, and then, of course, teach sound doctrine as well, and that's what we're going to see in this book. This is what we ought to be seeking in this book. Now, we know from... First, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That all Scripture is profitable for reproof and for instruction and for correction, for, uh, for instruction in righteousness, for doctrine. This is not the only book of sound doctrine. We know that, right? But this book will emphasize the importance of it, and so will we. Verse 4, so he says, Tell people that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 4, Neither give heed to fables 
and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in the faith. So <coughs> Paul first spoke of those who were actually teaching false doctrine, different doctrines than those that had been given to them by Jesus Christ. But then he emphasizes other things as well. He emphasizes the importance of rejecting what he calls fables or, or fictions, myths, stories, and then endless genealogies, unfinished never-ending genealogies. What Peter, uh, the, the, the fables, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 calls them cunningly devised fables. They're clever, they're smart, they're, they're interesting, but they are false nonetheless. So other doctrines, these would be reinterpretations of things which the Bible has made clear. Fables, things which perhaps traditions or mythologies Stories likely from pagan religions that have been merged with Christian thought. And then endless genealogies would almost certainly be speaking here of the Jews, the Judaizers, who were seeking to prove their authority because of their relationship to Abraham and perhaps to other biblical characters. In this, Paul seeks to combat several lines of error. False doctrine. False doctrine is when the truths of the Word of God are misinterpreted or reinterpreted to suit a narrative. A good example of this is that which we emphasized in verse 2. Jesus is God. A false doctrine. Other religious groups would, would reinterpret Jesus to say that he's not God. That he's not the true and living God. Maybe he's a lesser God. Maybe he's a man that has ascended to divine status. Maybe he is just a man that had the Lord's blessing upon him, but he's not really God. False doctrine. Something that the Bible does not teach. Something that has to be imposed upon the Bible, where you twist what the Bible says, where you reinterpret what the Bible says to present something that the Bible does not say. Stripping from Jesus his, his identity, his position in the Godhead, that would be another doctrine. Fables would perhaps speak towards those things which don't have any too, true doctrinal weight, but which people contend for or against, and, and perhaps oftentimes use pagan sources or, or, or the ideas of men to prove or to round out their points. Uh, in Christian circles today, we can find this in any number of places. Uh, we see this a lot in the debate about angels and demons, uh, their hierarchies, the spirit realm. The Bible doesn't tell us about those things. But there's a lot of biblical teaching, there's a lot of church teaching about those things in various circles. Things which the Bible says very little, so what do they do? Oftentimes they turn to pagan sources. They turn to demonic sources. They turn to what witches and warlocks have to say about the spirit realm, have to say about the hierarchies, have to say about the names of these various groups. And then they treat those as authoritative and they impose that on the scriptures. And this happens quite often. But none of it has any basis in the Bible. These are fables. These are myths. These are things which are, these are stories. These are things which come from non-authoritative sources that they are attempting to make authoritative. Finally, endless genealogies. We see this strongly among those who contend for or against the Jewish people today. They trace the Ashkenazi Jews and they trace the Sephardic Jews and the Sephardic Jews can be subdivided into the Sepharim and the Mizrahim and then they make arguments for or against Jewish ancestry and they fight about who's legitimate and who's not and it's profitless, and it's a huge distraction, and the time that God's people ought to be putting into following sound doctrine, living out sound doctrine, is wasted on fables and endless genealogies. 
And people love this kind of stuff. They really love this kind of stuff. And the reason why is because it makes them feel empowered. That they have information that others don't. That's a philosophy called Gnosticism, secret knowledge. It gives them something that they can grasp intellectually. It demands no exercise of the Spirit of God. It only demands the exercise of the carnal mind. So I can feel spiritual without having to go through the true difficult thing of submitting myself to the Spirit of God. And these things minister questions. They spur debates. And those can be a lot of fun because you're having to really dig and think and cover all the angles and that it's 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 a it's a it's a a intellectual exercise and that's fun for some people (laughs) that's fun it's stimulating it's interesting it's intriguing everyone loves a good story everyone loves a good conspiracy theory everyone loves to see how things that don't really you all, all of these disparate things might fit together we love that we talked about the internet already today of course the internet is awash with this stuff right people love this stuff And the best part about it is that since the Bible doesn't really speak to any of this stuff, no matter what I say, you can't really prove me wrong, right? So I I, I can never be proven wrong because none of it has any basis in anything. I'm just putting it all together. I'm just drawing the lines, which means I don't even have to be credible. I just have to be convincing. And it all distracts from what really matters. Godly edifying in faith building up one another in love, strengthening one another's walk with the Lord, working on the things which matter most unto life and eternity. And Christians, we can really struggle at the basics, can't we? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you, persecute you. Honor the brethren. Honor the king. These are things that the Bible say in black and white. But see, when we get off on the fables and the endless genealogies, it makes us feel as though we are doing something spiritual without having to invoke the Spirit. It makes us feel like we're doing the work without actually having to do the work. Because it makes us feel spiritual without having to go through all of that walk in the Spirit stuff. And so... Paul exhorts Timothy here, don't give heed to these things. These things minister questions. They cause people to be confused. They divide people rather than edifying, rather than building one another up. I don't know that I've ever had one of those conversations, which are fun to get into, where it's actually built us up in the faith, though. Where it's actually compelled us to go out and win someone to the Lord, or to go out and to, to, to be pure as He is pure, or to go out and to live with distinction That's not really what any of that does. Verse 5. Paul refocuses us. He says, Now the end of the commandment, this is a different word for commandment than the one in verse 1. The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Notice here that the end of the commandment, that last word commandment meant an authoritative um, uh, command that God had authoritatively commanded that Paul should be an apostle. This word is a mandate. This is speaking of the law. This is speaking of God's commands to us. This is speaking of the law, the the expectation of God. The end of the commandment. And we see a threefold structure that he uses 
to warn Timothy about the negatives of these things that don't matter. The end of this, the mandate from Christ to his church is not to trudge through the mud of intellectual curiosity, of traditions, of fables, of genealogies, of creative and daring interpretations of texts. The mandate is love. Love God. Love one another. If you just took those two things, love God, love one another, and you put those two, one in one pocket, one in another, and you said, I'm going to just spend, until I get these right, I'm going to spend the rest of my time just working on these, they'll be there in your coffin. Still in your pockets. Right? This, this, this is a, we've got a lot to do just in these commands, just in love. And if that's true, then we need to be careful that we're not allowing ourselves to get derailed, to get distracted. This love bears out in a threefold manifestation as Timothy presents it here. First, out of a pure heart, that's a love that's holy. Second, out of a good conscience, that's a love that's sincere. Third, out of unfeigned faith, that's a love that's genuine. So instead of teaching other doctrine, teach this. Have this pure love. Instead of running after fables, run after sincere love. And notice here, notice the threefold. He gave three negatives and three, three attributes of love. He said negative, sound, uh, false doctrine. Negative, fables. Negative, endless genealogies. Instead, love. What kind of love? A pure love. What kind of love? A, uh, a love in good conscience. What kind of love? A love in faith unfeigned. That kind of love. Let's replace these three exercises of intellectual curiosity and stimulation with these three exercises of spiritual value. Let's stay focused on sound doctrine. And if you're endeavoring to do these things, you might just find that you have very little time or energy left to pursue those things which have no spiritual profit or perhaps very little will to pursue those things. Now, we need to sit on this comment for a moment. I'm sorry, my clicker is staying behind me today. Uh, we need to sit on this, this uh, concept for a moment and consider the nature of the love which Paul says is the end. That word end there is the word telos. It's found quite often in, in, in uh, Greek philosophy as well. Uh, Aristotle, Plato, uh, they spoke of this concept of the telos, the result, the end point, the purpose of things. Paul says the end of the commandment, the whole point of the scriptures, the whole point of the commandments of God, the whole point of what God has told us is this love. And this is a really big deal in our age today because people read Jesus' teachings, they read Paul's teachings, and they say, well, everything's about love, right? Everything is about love. The end of everything is love. And so they say, well, if the end of everything is love, well, then we just need to love one another. And then we need to get down to how they define love, right? So we read the end of the commandment is charity, is love. And then those same people hear someone say, well, God wants us to live holy lives. Divorce is a sin. Sodomy is a sin. I don't want to be compelled to force to give away all my hard-earned money to someone else. And they say, well, wait a minute. You're not being loving. You're not accepting people as they are. You're not making them happy. You're not affirming them. You're not making them feel good. Therefore, you aren't loving them. Therefore, you're not a good Christian because the end of the commandment is love. And this is absolutely false. As parents, any parent knows full well, loving my child does not mean giving them everything they want affirming every decision they make. 
always making them happy. These are not things that come into my mind when I think of loving my children. I love my children enough to discipline them. I love my children enough to correct them. If my children come up and they, if, if, if uh, they give me a wrong answer on their math, I love them enough to correct them, to tell them they did something wrong, to tell them they're not thinking properly. I love my children too much to let them think things are true which are not, no matter how much they want them to be true. And this is why Paul's expression of love here is so helpful. Because the love that Paul speaks of here, that is the end of all the commandments, that is the telos, the end, the purpose of the commandments, does not throw out the commandments. It affirms the commandments. It's love out of a pure heart, literally a clean heart clear heart, a heart free from sin, free from evil, free from malice. It's love out of a good conscience, a proper moral consciousness, a heart that is in alignment with God's design and God's holiness. It is a love that is out of the, a faith that is unfeigned or without hypocrisy. This love is a genuine love, a, a genuine love in its expression, not because of the actions of one another, but because we believe the promises of God and that they are worth wholesale obedience. This love is so dramatically different from anything that the world perceives love to be today. And take note that most of the church is struggling with how to speak about love to the world because they have taken the world's definition of love and assumed it. The world says, this is what love means, therefore this. And the church says, well, yeah, we'll give you the definition of love, but we're going to say the Bible says something different. And, and then there's confusion. Because the, the, the people in the church are running, they're working off of the world's definition of love, and then trying to shoehorn that into the Bible. We can't do that. Don't let the world's definition of love be the definition that you use as you're trying to define what it means to love one another. It is not love to encourage or to affirm a person in sin. But it is love to care for a person in spite of sin. It is not love to allow a person to believe a lie without telling them the truth. But it is love to care for them even if they insist on believing the lie. I'm not going to let them stay in a lie without hearing otherwise but that doesn't mean I'm going to just kick them to the curb if they choose not to believe it, right? I think Paul expresses this concept best in Romans 13. He says this in verses 8 through 10 of Romans 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Literally, if you love one another, you have fulfilled the law. But notice then what he says in verse 9. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love therefore worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love, oh, excuse me, love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Do you see what he's not saying that all of those other commandments don't matter? What he's saying is that if you are loving your neighbor properly, then all of those commandments are a part of that. Paul makes it clear that all of the commandments are, the word here we have in our King James is comprehended. That literally means to sum up 
All the commandments of God are summed up in the command to love thy neighbor as thyself. The command to love does not override the commandments or invalidate the commandments. The command to love sums up or fulfills all of the commandments. So it is not loving to accept sin or to ignore sin or to pretend like sin doesn't exist. In doing so, I am breaching love. I am breaching the commandments. Therefore, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. And we need to make this distinction very clearly. Love will, in the midst of telling the truth and living the truth, never work ill toward his neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. The church is hurtling very quickly into apostasy today on the back of a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of what it means to love one another. Theologians, pastors, politicians are using this concept of loving one another to push their unbiblical and in sometimes even evil ideas and doctrines while simultaneously intimidating the true church into silence because the true church has allowed them to define love and then is trying to work to disprove all of the, the theories of love based on a definition of love that is faulty. And the church doesn't know how to do this because they're allowing pagan culture rather than the Bible to define what love is. And then they're attempting to argue, we are attempting to argue on their terms for God's commands. And we will fail every time if we do that. But we don't need to be apologetic as it relates to love and holiness. They don't contradict. True biblical love is the sum of all biblical holiness. The end result of every biblical command finds its essence in charity, love, out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of faith, unfeigned. Any definition of love that ignores biblical truth is not true. It's a lie. Love that ignores obedience is a lie. Love that ignores submission is a lie. Love that ignores truth is a lie. Love that ignores holiness is a lie. Love that ignores kindness is a lie. Love that ignores self-sacrifice is a lie. And love is the point. Not spurious doctrines, other doctrines, not fables, not endless genealogies. You can just keep that stuff because the end of the commandment, the point is love. The end of the commandment, the, the end goal, the result is love, is this kind of love. If we want to fulfill the word of God, then a holy, sincere, genuine love toward one another, that's the ticket. And this is not easy, is it? Because to love as Christ's love means we have to submit, means we need to be walking in the spirit, disciplined unto obedience, spending time in God's word, yielding myself to Christ. And that's much more difficult than simply looking at others, judging them, calling them dirty sinners and hating them. Or simply spending all of my time poring over books trying to figure out why the Ashkenazi Jews are not going to inherit the kingdom. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to actually submit myself to the Spirit of God, die daily to self, and live unto Christ. It's much more difficult to love my enemies, to pray for them, to bless them, than it is to pore over books and to figure out hierarchies of angels 
and demons. But that's the end of the commandment. Love. Out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of faith unfeigned. Verse 6. From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. If we miss the concept of love, we will derail in our Christian faith. And unfortunately, this is where so many are. Love is hard, so they swerve. They literally, meaning they're missing the mark, err. Very similar to the biblical word for sin. It's not the word for sin, which also means to miss the mark in an archery sense, but very similar word here. They turn aside, they turn away from this really hard loving thing and they instead become all talk. They babble about their unique interpretations of the biblical passages. They lord them over others. They see how they know things that other people don't and they feel good about that and that makes them feel spiritual so that they can ignore this other stuff. And because they feel spiritual without actually having to be spiritual, these things give them a semblance of knowledge and of usefulness and of distinction without all the hassle of submission. Submitting one to another. Edifying one another in love. Patience. Kindness. Temperance. All the fruit of the Spirit. Vain jangling is an easy substitute for love. But it's not an adequate substitute for love. And Paul points out a very particular type of teacher who has done this thing. And this is going to propel us into a mini-series already who have fallen away from grace and directly into legality. We read in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Paul begins speaking of those who would be teachers of the law. He's already said the end of the law, the end of the commandment, is love. And he says there are those who would desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand either what they're saying or what they're affirming. He's narrowing in here on a particular problem as it relates to the church of Ephesus, one which is actually was quite prevalent throughout the empire at the time, dealing with those, generally Judaizers, who would seek to draw believers back under the law of Moses. This is a transition verse to Paul's more direct warnings against legality, of which we will speak particularly over the next many weeks. I'm going to begin a mini-series on tracing the Christian's relationship to the law next week. And it's going to be probably, at, as of right now, the plan is six weeks long. Six messages speaking of how we, as God's people, relate ourselves to the law. How does the law, how, what, what is the historical controversy? How does the law relate to us as it relates to salvation? How does the law relate to us as it relates to living out a sanctified life? What do we do with the law? What do we do with the fact that much of the law is right and good? All of the law is right and good. <laughs> And yet, we're not going to keep certain elements of it. I'm not giving up my bacon, right? And so what do we do with this? Should I give up my bacon? And we're going to talk through that over the next six weeks. So we see this transition verse. But by placing this here, Paul makes clear that legalism, legality is a, is a form of other doctrine. And we'll see that particularly when we, get to, uh, when we get to Galatians as we study through this miniseries. To this end, Paul describes these men as those who desire to be teachers of the law in the church, but who don't understand what they're saying and don't understand what their statements are affirming. 
And again, we'll cover over the next several weeks what they mean by that. Today, for, for today, however, we are going to apply. And I want to ask you three questions as we apply today to take the concepts of what Paul has said about false doctrine and sound doctrine and to just kind of try to hammer it home. Question number one, have you become distracted? Have you become distracted? In this age of the internet and radio and television, it's very easy to get distracted And I speak of this from two different contexts. The first are perhaps those who have become distracted by things which have no profit. Other doctrines, misinterpretations, reinterpretations of the Bible, which men have convinced you through their arguments and reasoning, but have little basis in the Bible itself. Fables, things which we cannot prove from the Word of God, but which traditions, stories, mythologies, or experience things which are not natural extensions of biblical concepts, but are completely foreign to the scriptures, but are given a a biblical sheen, a biblical veneer, and are taught as doctrine. In genealogies, worrying about sources or ties or roots, rather than staying focused upon Christ. Paul warned the church of Colossae about such things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he said, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Jump to verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We don't need the philosophies and the traditions and the ideologies of the world to find Christ. You're not going to find Christ in those things. It's not there. He's not there. They might have a, they might have a, a reflection of those things, as they borrowed from a biblical worldview to formulate their philosophies and their ideologies, there might be a, a shadow of truth in a mythology as it has borrowed from biblical worldviews and teachings. But beware lest philosophies and vain deceits spoil you. The rudiments of this world spoil you. The traditions of men spoil you from Christ himself. Things which lead us contrary to Christ. In Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you know Christ, you have what you need. You don't need to run down the rabbit trails of every philosophy or tradition to know Him. Now, it's not to say that these things don't have value. I think there's, there can be value in these things. We don't even need to run down these rabbit trails to counteract them, however, because when we know Christ, we have what we need. Often, I often think of an illustration that, that has been given, I think, in, in several different sermons I've heard, and I've given it several times, that when people are being trained to recognize counterfeit currency, the bulk of the training is not spending time seeing all of the different counterfeits, see, because there's just too many ways to counterfeit currency. So instead, they spend the time learning the real one so well that ones that are not real become evident, by nature of knowing the one that is true so well. We don't need to spend so much time learning what is not true. If we know what is true, it will protect us. Now, there are people who need to give more than that, right? There are people, ministers, particularly those involved in apologetics, who have devoted their lives to giving deeper answers. There's value in that. But that's not the depth of necessity. Because if you have the truth, you don't really need to know why what's wrong is wrong. 
You just need to know what is right. So first we ask, have you been distracted by false teachings? But I also ask today, have you been distracted by things which maybe are fine and right, but have become out of balance? This is the idea of majoring on the minors, of taking something which doesn't matter as much, but does matter, which isn't as important, but is important. It can be important, but making a much bigger deal out of it than it needs to be. Splitting hairs. Spending so much time systematizing and categorizing that we forget to live doctrine. Spending all of our time fighting for our preferences so we forget about loving one another. Spending all of our time looking for points of division rather than looking for points of unity. Are you a distracted Christian today? Are you so busy fighting, arguing, rejecting that you have forgotten to live and to love and to serve? Have you strayed, either intentionally or unintentionally, away from the things of the Spirit, from the end of the commandment, which is charity out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, into some pet doctrine or standard that has stripped from you your spiritual love and replaced it with some measure of judgmentalism or selfishness or pride? We need to take personal inventory of our own hearts on these matters and make corrections if necessary to align ourselves strongly with sound doctrine, with the end of the commandment, which is charity. We'll talk more about that, of course, as the weeks go on. Point number two. First, have you become distracted? Second, have you become deceived? Have you gotten caught up in the world's false definition of love that insists that love means you have to accept what God does not accept, approve of what God does not approve, and like that which God hates? Have you been sold upon a definition of love that exists without truth, without holiness, without submission, without obedience, or any of the virtues of Christ-like living? Have you been convinced that in order to love someone, you not only have to care for them in spite of their sin, but actually approve of their sin? Have you been deceived into thinking that love is a feelings-based interaction, where I am only loving someone if they feel good about what I'm doing to them or for them, if, if they feel good about themselves or their condition or their decisions? These are lies. Love is a choice, not a feeling. Now, love often comes with feelings, but at the root of love is a choice, I choose to love my children. I choose to love my wife. I don't always feel like loving them. But that can't change my love for them because love is a choice, an unconditional choice to do what is best for the object of my love, regardless of self-interest, regardless of circumstance. That's what Christ did for us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies against Him in our minds by our wicked works, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait until He felt good about us to love us? If we had to wait for God to feel good about us to love us, we'd be doomed. But love is a choice. Love, of course, biblically defined, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. The word charity, again, is used in our King James. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in, tr in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity is long-suffering. Charity is kind. 
Charity does not allow envy to encroach upon my relationship. Charity does not exalt myself over the one I say I love. Does not seek myself at their expense. Whether that's jokes, whether that's value, whether that's success, not at their expense. Does not seek, yes, myself at the expense of others. Uh, Does not assume evil intentions or actions. It never rejoices when the one I love is doing something that is wrong or sinful, doing something that God hates. It rather rejoices so greatly when the one I love does right, rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. Love is very, very, very patient. Love believes all things. Love never gives up. Love hopes all things, never loses that hope of joy and of repentance. And love endures all things to the very end. That's that's love. This is what love looks like. So when Paul says that the whole commandment is comprehended in this one command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, this is what Paul is speaking about here. Anything short of this is is not the fullness of love. Now again, none of us is perfect. We strive for this. This This is a goal. This is what we strive for. We're not just all or nothing. You either get it all or you get nothing. Right? This is what we, we, we strive for every day. To pretend that sinners aren't sinning is not to love them. To pretend as though the damned are not the damned is not to love them. But also to lord myself over them for any reason, to judge them, to make myself feel good at their expense, to be short or impatient with them, this is not to love them either. To cast them out into outer darkness and expect nothing, no hope, no chance, no, that's not love either. Do you live in love? Do you understand love? Have you allowed the world's definition of love to encroach upon you so that you you don't know what love is anymore? You've lost that sight of what love is. You've lost the sight of what is the end of the commandment. Would you realign today? Final point. Have you been shamed and silenced? It's far too often that we as believers, because we haven't thought about these things perhaps as, as much as we should, become afraid to speak up for what we believe or lose the ability to defend what we believe. Whether it's because we've assumed the world's false definition of love or we say, no, that's not what love is, but I couldn't really tell you. I couldn't really help you. I just don't think the way you think. One way or another, we have a tendency to just go silent because we don't know how to properly express what we believe. We believe it, but we don't know why. And unfortunately, what often happens is parents believe it, but they don't know why. At one time, they did know why. Someone knew why. Then they taught it. And don't, not, if, there, if enough generations are believing something and they don't know why, at some point, some child is going to say, well, then I'm not going to believe it anymore. If we don't build a foundation for our faith then at some point, our children are going to walk away from that faith. Are we unwilling to tell the truth because the world around us has shamed us into thinking that what we believe is unpalatable? Now it is to them. It always will be to them. That's never going to change. But you need to know what love is. And you need to know what sound doctrine is. And you need to understand where it fits in. 
Because if we don't understand it, then we will easily be susceptible either to losing it altogether or to being shamed into silence because we can't defend it by those who speak in bold ignorance. And this shame does not reflect that the arguments of biblical authority have no foundation, but only our own confusion as to how to relate to them. And so by God's grace, let us be willing to take the time and effort necessary to get the answers to our questions, to know what it is that love is, to know why it is that we do what we do, to understand the relationship of love to the commandments, to understand that love does not discount holiness does not discount truth, does not discount righteousness, does not discount obedience, does not discount submission. And then to share that truth in love. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 